probability that one or more team members may be infected by intruder organism. 75%. If intruder organism reaches civilized areas, entire world population infected 27,000 hours from first contact. Welcome to the Thing Minute Podcast, where we discuss John Carpenter's 1982 science fiction horror masterpiece, The Thing, one minute at a time. I'm Harper W. Harris from harperwharris.com, and joining me this week is... I'm Josh Horowitz from 5 Minutes of Trouble and the upcoming 5 Minutes of Bonsai. And I am also not Josh Horowitz, but in fact Brett Stillo, but in fact also from Five Minutes of Trouble and Five Minutes of Bonsai. Did that make sense? Sure didn't to <laughs> more, me. More or less. <laughs> so, yeah, thank you guys so much. It's, it's, a, it's a pleasure to have some fellow John Carpenter Movies by Minutes podcasters on. That's like a very, I think, are, are we the only ones in that extremely small group here? <laughs> yeah, no, no, thanks, thanks for inviting us. Yeah, I don't know. Are there any other uh, John Carpenter Movies by Minutes yet? I think we may uh, be the only ones. Uh, surprisingly, uh, no. We are a small but dedicated niche, and it's that's interesting because uh, as I was preparing for the podcast this morning, I was I was kind of mentally rolodexing about uh, Escape from New York, mm. and assuming, oh yeah, so who's doing the, the Escape from New York podcast? And as we just alluded to, no one is doing the Escape yeah. from New York podcast. So get on the stick, people. Yeah, Lots I'm always of opportunities out there. No kidding. I'm always a little surprised there's not an Escape from New York or a Halloween movies by minute podcast. Those are some definite uh definite prime candidates for a podcast, I think. So Where they live. That's one of my favorites. Yeah, no kidding. Oh, that gosh. would be a blast to do. Gosh. I was hoping someone would mention they live because mm-hmm. uh well, we'll we'll get into that later, but you know, definitely one of his best and oh, I would just maybe just quickly add on that, you know, his career. And it's just this awesome run from the late 70s to the late 80s where he could do no wrong. I mean, mm-hmm. if you look at those movies he put out in that space of time, especially from Halloween to They Live, you just go, wow. And this one's right in the middle of that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, it's kind of insane. So, yeah, probably later in the week, we'll, we'll dig into a little bit of uh, Carpenter's filmography, especially with uh, with the podcast that you guys have done. But uh, I guess before we dig into minute 66 for today, um, uh, I thought I'd give you guys a chance just to talk about the your first time seeing the thing, or, or any kind of uh, you know fond memories you have of seeing it when you were younger, or anything like that. Yeah, well, with me, uh, I, I think I was actually a John Carpenter fan mostly because of Big Trouble in Little China, and any exposure to other films sort of came from that. But the first time that I saw the thing was not in theaters. Uh, that year, I saw E.T. That was my first movie, uh, but. Uh, I was never really a horror fan, never really uh, gravitated toward that. But I did hear when I was a Big Trouble fan that uh, John Carpenter was going to be in town. I live in Los Angeles, and he was going to be doing a signing of, at that time, it was the 15th anniversary of The Thing on DVD over at Dave's Video, and uh, I think it was in Studio City. And I went over there with my Big Trouble Little China poster in hand, and I, I bought a copy of the Thing DVD. And I, that was my first chance to actually meet John Carpenter 
for about 10 seconds. He, <laughs> he signed my poster, you know, said hello. I told him about the site and, oh, people want a sequel. And, and after that, I uh, the, the Thing DVD was kind of just sitting there signed by Carpenter for a long time. I figured, well, I guess I'll, I'll watch it. And man, <laughs> what a what a creepy, crazy movie! <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. I have kind of an interesting history with the thing. I was a teenager in 1982, the glorious summer of 1982. <laughs> I definitely remember the hype around this movie. And uh, to kind of put it in a frame of reference, we were definitely the Gore Wars had begun. <laughs> You know, yeah. we were in the yeah, we were in the midst of this, you know, awesome special effects revolution. And, you know, the the sub the niche of that was the Gore Wars, you know, had the howling American werewolf in London, uh, just a few months before uh some of the prosthetic shots in Poltergeist. Mm-hmm. So I remember a a horror reviewer uh writing about this one and you know, writing about a guy's head splits open and another guy's head rolls across the floor, crawls across the floor <laughs> up to the ceiling and you got exploding dogs. And he was excited. Uh, I, however, was not a big fan of the Gore Wars. So when it was in the theaters, I passed on it. But I, I was working at a video store, which really dates me. So I saw it a, a numerous times at the video store I worked at. And that was sort of my introduction uh, to it was kind of by force, uh, but hey, I got into it, and you know, it's a brilliant movie. Awesome. So yeah, yeah, uh, you guys have got some earlier experience that, uh, with it than me, which is which is awesome. I uh, I didn't I didn't see it until uh, probably the. I don't know, maybe the late late '90s, early 2000s, and it was. <laughs> I was I was like you, Josh. I did not. I was not into horror movies at all when I was a kid, and didn't get into it until uh, I was uh, my my cousin who I would hang out with in the in the summers. We'd uh, he was way into monster movies and stuff, and finally convinced mm. me to uh, to start watching some. If if I, I agreed to, if he would warn me before anything scary happened. <laughs> which, <laughs> what an introduction! Yeah, yeah. <laughs> to the genre. Jeez. Most of the time, he uh, he abided by, but uh, yeah, in this one, I don't know that he did. <laughs> so, um, but yeah, so this was one of the first kind of horror movies I I uh, really started watching, and then it was it. T- totally changed my uh, my perspective on the genre after that, and I've I've been a huge yeah. fan ever since. But cool. So um, yeah, I think we can let's uh, dive into this minute. So we're sure. at a uh, minute sixty six of the thing, which begins with um, Mac walking away from Fuchs's room and in, in the the last little bit of that cool split diopter shot, and then um, ends a minute later with uh, Fuchs seeing something out in the snow and walking over to investigate. So um, yeah, this is an interesting minute. This is we get just about the last uh, last little bit of Fuchs's untimely uh, untimely death here. <laughs> so yeah, we start with that cool cool kind of split diopter shot, which is one of the just a couple. There's I think there's only maybe two in the movie, but it's certainly one of my favorite shots. It always stands out um, in just being something that's kind of extra stylized in the movie. Mm. Exactly, exactly. And you know, kudos to the great Dean Cundey mm-hmm. who shot this movie. And yeah, as you were saying, the you know split focus shot, you know, interesting that you know your foreground character is Fuchs, you know, a guy who's you know his clock is ticking, <laughs> yet he gets this awesome uh, close up in the split focus shot, and then yeah, you have McCready in the background, very menacing, 
right? And, you know, it leads you to think, wait, wait, is, is he the hero? He's a, that's Kurt Russell. Uh, I don't know. This is weird. Very unsettling shot. Yeah, it's a nice foreshadow to what we're going to get in tomorrow's minute where they, we really start casting suspicion on McCready, which is such a, a crazy thing. We'll get into that tomorrow. But um, yeah, it definitely does cast him as this kind of menacing, ominous figure in the background for sure uh, mm. with that shot, which is interesting. Yeah, and this is one of the minutes where you have these sort of long music notes that are playing. Mm-hmm. It seems to be a big staple of this whole film, you know, the it wasn't just uh, any Morricone, was it? Didn't John Carpenter have uh, some role in, in the music too? Yeah, it's it's kind of a messy thing with the with the credits for the music for this movie because Ennio Morricone did all the kind of real thematic stuff, but most of the stuff mm-hmm. like this, the just kind of you know rumbling low synths and pads and things like that, are Carpenter and Alan Howarth who did a lot of the sound work for the movie too. Um, mm-hmm. They kind of added that in just to kind of fill in the gaps, I guess. Mm. Actually, that's a, a good segue there because uh, Alan Howarth is somebody who also did the music with Carpenter on Big Trim Little China. We actually right. had him on our show as a guest. Did you really? So that's a, fantastic. Yeah, it was a great episode. It was one of the last ones we did. And he was talking about some of the work they did on that film and other Carpenter collaborations. And on this one, he, he has uh, an uncredited special sound effects uh, uh, credit, at least on IMDb. Yeah. And I... Uh, and you know we we do get to hear that uh, later in the minute when yeah. you know you see uh, something go by and that very uh, very unique sound effect that goes there. Oh yes, so yeah, so yeah. let's let's move towards that uh, that bit there. So yeah, so after Mac leaves, Fuchs kind of starts to you know go back to his work. Presumably, he's working on a new test since uh, they lost the blood, so they're trying to figure out a new way to figure out who's who's who. And Fuchs has been working on it for. I think a couple days now based on some of the time jumps that have happened in the last couple minutes of the movie. Um, and then the, uh, the lights start to flicker. We hear like kind of a, a big chunk sound, like maybe somebody's hit a breaker or something. And then his lights, uh, the light on his desk starts to dim out. And mm-hmm. I always thought this was kind of uh, a little odd to me that Fuchs is like a very kind of jumpy, nervous person in this whole movie. He's always kind of anxious. And e- even before stuff starts to get really crazy, that's kind of just his personality, it seems like. But when the lights go out, he's totally calm and silent, just, you know, goes for his drawer, reaches and grabs a, a flare or a candle or, you know, mm-hmm. I always thought it was kind of, it, it, I mean, it definitely adds to the suspense, but it feels a little out of character for Fuchs, I always felt. Hmm. And I, I found it interesting that uh, when the power goes out, it's not your typical power outage, you know, where it's just like, gunk and then the, the light's out. I mean, it's that sort of slow mm-hmm. bleed to nothing. You know, it, it kind of sets the tone that, you know, things are, are slowing down and, you know, something mysterious is coming. Yeah. And it's almost, a, uh, in a sense, a POV shot. I think yeah. in any other movie, if you were to show a power out scene, you'd have a close up on the character. The background would get dim and then that character would look around selling what's going on. But this, uh, <laughs> I got to admit, as I was reviewing this, it's been a while since I've seen the movie. You know, my first thought was oh did Fuchs is he leaving did he just turn the lights out is he done for the night you know yeah but uh it's so there's interesting subtlety which uh in fact there's a lot of subtle suspense tropes going on in the five minutes we're going to review here Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah and it's it's worth mentioning I think that probably (sighs) the reason this uh this little sequence is maybe stands out a little bit and feels a little different in some ways is um that 
it was one of the later things that they shot and that originally Fuchs had a completely different death in the script and, uh, and they shot some of it, I think not all of it, but, um, he was, he was killed by, uh, getting an ax in the chest, uh, at some point they find him, uh, like that. And they, uh, they, John Carpenter decided he didn't like that. And, you know, cause there were a couple deaths like that. Bennings was killed by like a knife in the back or something. And somebody pointed out to him, like, uh, the thing probably wouldn't go around like, as a slasher villain, like killing people, it doesn't really want to kill people. It wants to take them over. Um, so when they decided to reshoot this, basically, the uh, Larry Franco, one of the producers, told John Carpenter he could shoot whatever he wanted to uh, to reshoot Fuchs's death as long as it took less than three hours. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. So they shot like this that. very very quickly, um, which kind of <laughs> you know might explain some of the mysteriousness of it. Why there's so little substance to it? It's very very quick. But um, hmm. yeah, for three hours, this is great. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Harper. Just not to not to get too tangential, but have you ever read the article about yeah the celebrated you know rewrite and reshoot of this movie? The uh, the one that um, uh, Stuart Cohen wrote. I uh, I think it was. I can't remember who wrote it exactly. I just remember reading this article a couple of years back that goes into that how uh, you know they're looking at the dailies and. Uh, you know, Carpenter has this feeling like, no, this is, it's going the wrong way. It's, it's turning into the fog again. Mm-hmm. Yep. And there was, you know, I can't remember there was, if there was uh, a weather that forced this, the uh, production to shut down for a week, but yeah, then there's this very frantic rewrite and recut that really turns the movie. It does a pivot. Huh. Yeah. So, yeah, I was just wondering if, if you, you know, it sounds like you were alluding to that just a moment ago, mm-hmm. like, you know, with Fuchs' death and how the movie was really going in one direction. And then out of, out of necessity and urgency, uh, changes were made. So, yeah, you, you have, yeah, like a much more suspenseful and mysterious death scene coming up. Hmm. Yeah, it's the the history of this movie is really fascinating, and um, yeah, I'll put a link up to it. I think that it's probably we're probably talking about the same article that um, Stuart Cohen, who's one of the producers on this, has. It, it's <laughs> based on the amount of stuff he's written about it. It almost seems like he's made it his life's purpose to like archive and catalog everything that happened during the making of this movie, which has been <laughs> great for me. Um, but it's it's super fascinating if you're a fan of the movie or, or really just interested in filmmaking in general because it, it really gives an interesting insight into kind of um, just how how difficult it is to craft a story during production and how, you know, you can really make major changes that will make or break a movie uh, very quickly. You have to make those decisions, uh, you know, on a dime and, and shoot stuff like this, you know, that they shoot in a, a quarter of a day um, that, you know, drastically changes the outcome of one of the characters and, and kind of the feel of the movie. So it's, mm-hmm. yeah, it's definitely worth a read. It's really, really interesting. And um, it's... in it's kind of interesting reading it, wondering like th- this movie could have gone bad. So in so many places, um, we're so lucky that it, it worked out as well as it did just because of the kind of determination and, and, uh, uh, you know, goodwill of John Carpenter and, and crew, um, to figure out a way to make this all work. Well, I did hear that the studio didn't quite like the ending and they wanted to have that reshot. Was that something? Yeah. They, um, they shot, they even shot another ending where McCready, basically gets picked up by a helicopter. He gets rescued. Um, and John Carpenter shot it, but he didn't tell the studio that he shot it. It was like an absolute last case, like if they refused to release it or something. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, it, and, and, and I, I think after that, he destroyed it. It's, nobody's ever really even seen it. Um, 
<laughs> but uh, yeah, it's just one of those things where that's that's partially why the movie didn't do so well because the studio was not real pleased with how it turned out, uh, particularly the way it ended. Um, mm. And so they they didn't go to great lengths to uh, to. Pr- I think they promoted it okay, but particularly the problem was that they released it on a really poorly timed release schedule with uh, with ET coming out the week before or two weeks prior. Yeah. Happy alien movie versus not so happy alien. Movie. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, not not quite the same feel here. Although uh, I would argue that E.T. is about as scary as this movie or it was to me when I was a kid. <laughs> it has its moments. For That's sure. something maybe I'll, I'll, you know, I'll, I'll go into a, a little later in the week. But the if, if you will, the, the Spielberg Carpenter rivalry, whether yeah. it was intentional or not, and just. You know, in a sense, there's a period in the 80s where they're making, well, very similar movies, but for very different audiences. Mm. And uh, yeah, just to double check, was it two weeks after E.T.? Again, I was remembering it was in August, but no, this came uh, out on, only 36 years ago. So. <laughs> yeah, really. Uh, this came out on June 25th and E.T. came out two weeks before that. This came out the same day as uh, Blade Runner. Oh, wow. <laughs> Isn't that crazy? Wow. <laughs> That explains also why I didn't see it in the theater. And on June 25th, I'm sure I was still waiting in line to see E.T. <laughs> yeah, that's that was part of the thing. Yeah, even when they were having the, pr- the premiere for this movie, which they did like a whole event of it. They had Elvira come out and they had uh, a dress as your favorite monster and like the best costumes got free admission to the oh, theater wow. and stuff like that. They had, a, they had a pretty cool looking premiere. But I think even while they were doing that, there were people still lined up around the block to see E.T. while that was happening. Hmm. Yeah, um, it, Josh, you're probably too little to remember the standing in line that you did, <laughs> or you know maybe, or maybe you know you were carried on somebody's shoulders. But yeah. you know, another time and another place, uh, hmm. waiting in line for hours to see well, a movie. Well, I certainly remember that when the Star Wars movie. I was going to say came me. out. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I mean, I, I went to UCLA. And some of the best theaters in the country were actually uh, in in certain parts of Westwood, and you know the, one of the big premieres for Star Wars was going to be at the at the Man Village at the time, <laughs> and yeah, that, that that was the whole thing where people were waiting in line for for months. It was this whole big mm-hmm. gimmick thing, but but yeah, day of, I mean, yeah, it was stretched around the block, and yeah, I, I remember that. Yeah. You don't really see that anymore. I mean, I guess with this whole. You know, advent of reserved tickets and stuff. There's really no need for it. Movie phone, exactly. Right. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I think I think I remember. Uh, I had definitely stood in line for Phantom Menace and for Attack of the Clones. But by the time Revenge of the Sith came out, I, I think that was the last movie I like went really, really early to get in line because we we got there and realized we got there like two or three hours before the movie and realized we were the only people there waiting. And we were like, <laughs> yeah, I guess people don't do this anymore. <laughs> <laughs> but, um. I thought it was worth mentioning that after uh, Fuchs gets up and lights... Well, first of all, it's odd because when he goes outside, it's definitely a flare. But mm-hmm. on the ins- when he's walking around inside, it does not look like a flare. It looks like some kind of weird... I don't know if maybe he didn't light it correctly. Like, it's like a long flame. Like, it's not, a, it's not like burning like the other flares do, which is weird. Yeah. It looks like a, either a candle or a lighter. Yeah, it's... It's odd because it looks like he pulls a flare out of the drawer. Maybe I don't know. Maybe they were running out of time and they're just like, ah, oh, just give him a give him a lighter or something. Because <laughs> yeah, when he goes outside, it's definitely one of the flares that we've kind of been seeing through the movie. Those real pinkish looking right. uh, sulfur flares or whatever. But yeah. Um, yeah, I thought it was worth mentioning. I never really noticed before that as he walks through the room, you know, right before we get the jump scare, he trips on what sounds like a tin can, which. Mm. Uh, 
thought it was kind of funny since the last minute is when he's insisting that everybody eats out of cans. So obviously he's been doing that for a few days now. He's just leaving his canned trash all over the place. <laughs> he's a messy scientist. Apparently. I guess he's got a lot like, on his mind. I like the lighting, <laughs> sure. though. I, I mean, uh, yeah, Brett, you were talking about Dean Cundy being the cinematographer at here. You know, there's the, the really neat blue lighting and, you know, the, the visual of the pink red flare over that blue background and the falling snow. I, exactly. I, my it's, comment on this one was that when he goes outside, it reminded me of Empire Strikes Back, the Cloud mm-hmm. City dual look. Yeah, yeah, it does have that same kind right. of color contrast. You're right. Hmm. Yeah. It's an interesting for, you know, a dark film, thematically dark. It's very colorful. It is. You know, yeah. Cundy sneaks those those colors in and it, it's it's a film. Because, you know, in this age of artificial uh, digital lens flare that comes out of a carton that you can get at the supermarket, uh, that's a real honest-to-gosh lens flare. And that's it's so right. organic and uh, it it almost looks like it'll take over the scene. Hmm. Yeah, it's, it's so bright. It's interesting. They talk about um, – I, th- I think it was in Dean Cundy's commentary. He talks a lot about how he really wanted to use the flares as a practical – lighting source that, um, you know, in most cases they try to keep it in these kind of scenes. Anyways, they try to keep it dark and use the flares as the actual practical thing that's lighting up the actors faces, but Mm -hmm. they were always struggling with either, you know, they were trying to keep it slightly off screen so that the flare wasn't like, uh, you know, overwhelming in some cases, but at the same time, they also were trying to not have the actors put it like incredibly dangerously close to their faces. (laughs) So it was like, you know, kind of this weird balance. And, uh, I'm sure that was, maybe a little difficult to deal with because obviously those things are incredibly bright. Um, mm. So to keep that balance too and still be able to see everything in the background with the exposure set the way it is and everything is, is it's gorgeous. The, and this, uh, this minute too, especially when Fuchs goes outside is definitely one of the best examples of the, um, the, you know, the beautiful cinematography and color work that's in this movie. Mm-hmm. But yeah, so we get in uh, here what might be, I'm trying to think. It, it's certainly one of the first jump scares in the movie. There's not a ton of jump scares in this movie, uh, but this is definitely one of the big ones. And, you know, Fuchs trips over that can and looks down to see what's going on, and then suddenly uh, a, a, some kind of shadow crosses the screen right in front of the camera, and Fuchs doesn't, doesn't get a chance to see who it is. Um, and we get that, uh, as you mentioned earlier, we get that, uh, that great kind of creepy synthesizer I don't, mm-hmm. I don't sting, I guess it's a stinger, but it's definitely, you know, by now it's probably in some libraries is like jump scare number four or whatever. <laughs> it's, it's probably also, you know, a fundamental base that Howarth based all his enterprise and warp sounds, all the, those <sighs> yeah. epic whooshes, uh, you know, since from Star Trek two through all the shows, uh, when you see the enterprise in warp, that's Alan Howarth like yeah. that. And you get a little dose of that here. My, my question with this jump scare uh, is, is that, in fact, James Hong doing a cameo as Lopan, sort of whooshing across the screen? <laughs> that was my first thought. Because Josh, bar- pardon me for asking, but I can't recall. Isn't there a scene in Big Trouble where Lopan sort of, or something goes across the camera? Very uh, similar to that. Uh, there, there's a couple of scenes where, like during the fight, where suddenly, you know, the camera kind of just sort of whooshes past and blurs a bit. Uh, but yeah. otherwise, Lopan just kind of is on his dolly. He tracks along at one point. Yeah. Maybe that's it, because it's such a smooth transition across the screen. For some reason, I just thought, um, 
for some reason, John Carpenter had to have James Hong do it, even though that <laughs> I don't know if, if uh, they were doing any kind of pre-production on B- Big Trouble at this point. But uh, I'd like to think actually, I'd like to think it's not James Hong. It is, in fact, low pan. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he's well, been look. Yeah, he's been looking for this saucer for years. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> That's a crossover I would love to see. That would be that would be fascinating. <laughs> yeah, well, it certainly had its share of monsters in Big Trouble Little China. I think that the uh, the eyeball guardian would probably be right at home here in the Antarctic. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That would be very interesting. Um, <laughs> yeah. So I don't know. Uh, there's 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 actually you know kind of no evidence in the movie to point one way or another towards who this actually is that he sees, and we never really get any more any uh, another hint of it, but. Presumably, it's it's whoever has already been taken over who is uh, who's also kind of sowing this distrust. It's probably the same person who's uh, he's leading Fuchs to find this clue that uh, that mm. we'll see in the next minute. But obviously, mm. uh, whatever happens, it doesn't go quite as as planned for Fuchs. <laughs> Not so good for Fuchs. Nope. So I, I think that's more or less all I had for this particular minute. Did you guys have anything else you wanted to uh, to mention? No, I just I have a note here that the uh, Fuchs actor Joel Polis kind mm-hmm. of looks like Alan Howarth. <laughs> <laughs> I never really thought about that. You're kind of right. Yeah, yeah. He has uh, I, when when I was looking at Fuchs in these minutes, he was reminding me of of William Hurt in Altered States. Yeah, it's just that you know it's definitely a look of that era. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm a scientist, but I'm also kind of a hippie a little bit. <laughs> Yeah, definitely. That that's not a look that you see very often these days. <laughs> no, no. It's it's like, you know, it's it's hippie dad look. I remember that look quite well from the era. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, you're right. He would uh Joe Polis in this movie would fit in very well in a uh in a Spielberg movie of of the era as well. Uh, yeah, completely. completely. I could, I could see like him a, in uh, Close Encounters or something. Absolutely Close Encounters. Absolutely. Or yeah, he's he's one of the scientists at near the end of E.T. Or he's, you know, he could be uh, looking over the house in Poltergeist. But mm-hmm. I think, yeah, there's a lot of movies from this era that have guys that look like Joe Polis. <laughs> or, you know, on a darker angle, uh, you know, Ber- Bernie gets the subway uh, shooter. <laughs> oh, wow. Such a, <laughs> That's a reference. <laughs> yeah. It was just those, you know, is that those big wire rim aviator glasses and... Mm. You know, the comb over is just classic look. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, it's it's interesting. There's certainly, uh, we'll probably get to some more talk about this later too, but definitely some crossover between Spielberg movies and uh, and, and Carpenter movies again, just with the actors and that, you know, we mentioned Joel Polis could probably be in any of those, but Richard Mazur actually almost was. He was, uh, who plays Clark in this movie. He um, he had uh, auditioned for a role in E.T. and didn't didn't get it. And Spielberg, uh, Spielberg told him that he wanted him to come back to audition for something else, and he was going to. But then he got the role in the thing and, and decided to go with that. And the role he eventually he would have been trying out for would have been the uh, the dad in Poltergeist. So we we mm. could have had a, a Clark from the thing in Poltergeist, which would have been very interesting. <laughs> wow! And there you go, Craig T. Nelson. Compare him with William Hurt. And, you know, Joel Polis could play like the geeky brother of either of those two guys in a movie. So sure. <laughs> it's all cyclical. It is. So, yeah, it's, this is definitely a look from this era. You're right. <laughs> from the early mm-hmm. 80s. Um, cool. I think that that probably wraps us up. Any, anything else you guys wanted to bring up? No. Nope. Good here. 
Not at this time. All righty. <laughs> so uh, cool. So I think that'll wrap up uh, minute 66 of The Thing. But in the meantime, listeners, you can always go to thethingminute.com for full show notes on every episode. That'll have uh, links to anything we talked about or uh, any behind-the-scenes photos I can find that kind of match up with what we mentioned and anything like that. So check that out if you got some time. And don't forget to come back tomorrow for another episode of The Thing Minutes. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the show, please go to thethingminute.com. There you'll find the show notes with links to anything we talked about on this episode and lots of other resources on The Thing. You can also find us on Twitter at The Thing Minute and on Facebook at facebook.com slash The Thing Minute. But most importantly, subscribe, rate, and review us in iTunes so you'll never miss an episode. Check out other podcasts like this at moviesbyminutes.com and be sure to head over to starwarsminute.com to listen to the team that started it all. Thanks for listening, and until next time, this is Harper, signing out.